Welcome to the Smarter Building Materials Marketing Podcast, helping you find better ways to grow leads, sales, and outperform your competition. And now, here are your hosts, Zach Williams and Beth Popnikoloff. All right, everybody, welcome to Smarter Building Materials Marketing, where we believe your online presence should be your best salesperson. I am Zach Williams, alongside my co-host, Beth Popnikolov. And today we're going to be talking about the future of architecture, specifically how can you get the attention of architects and what messaging is really resonating today, which is why we're really excited to have two guests today who are going to be talking about material specification and procurement or product procurement, if you will. And they are in the glorious New York City high-rise right now. Beth, do you want to introduce our guests? We have Sydney Mainster, who is the Director of Sustainability at Durst, which focuses on high-rises in New York City, where they are, coincidentally. And we also have Amanda Kaminsky. She's the founder and principal at Building Product Ecosystems. Welcome to the show. We are so excited to have you both here. We would love to get started by just having you guys tell us from a 30,000-foot view how both Durst and building product ecosystems are working together and what your individual visions are as well. Sure. Yes, Gosh, yeah. So thanks again for having us here. We're pretty excited to do this together. We've had a long relationship of working together and specifically in this area of product specification procurement and really trying to innovate. We've been working together since 2014. The Durst organization and building product ecosystems were hand in hand from that point. And it really was a brainchild of the leadership here at Durst, if you would corroborate with that. And they really saw the need to have a multi-stakeholder effort looking at product innovation. So Durst is a real estate developer and we see one side of the equation, but in order to make change in the industry, we really needed, I don't know, all players, all entities that were responsible for different parts of the supply chain and procurement or specification, et cetera. So the building product ecosystems effort really tries to bring all those together and work towards a common goal. Maybe mm-hmm. you can talk a little bit more about sort of the next step of sure. what happened. Yeah, and, and it, it was actually started as a public-private partnership here at Durst with some local research institutions, City University of New York and the New School, Parsons, mm-hmm. the New School, and then evolved into a, a separate entity, which it is right now, but operates in a very similar way to its kind of roots, right? Mm-hmm. So. We're focused with folks that like to innovate and try things first and do it very carefully in the industry. So folks like the Durst organization, and we're really looking at kind of the full cycle of making, using, and reusing building materials. And so kind of optimizing for that whole system, hence the use of the word ecosystem, it implies health and that's not accidental. So we're looking at building materials that are typically purchased on a lot of projects in high volume. Mm-hmm. So concrete and gypsum wallboard are two of those you know, major focus materials. So we're, we're really working together with, as Sydney said, the manufacturing community, recyclers in the region, local governments to really optimize for that whole system and ensure that there are absolutely minimized negative impacts. Right. And I know your audience is is mainly product manufacturers and where we as a a real estate developer, um, you know, we're really, we're the buyers, right? So we see the importance of our organization as supporting the effort of really demanding these items and procuring them. But obviously someone's got to make it. Someone's got to produce this stuff. 
So we really had to figure out how to engage manufacturers. And I think where sometimes building product manufacturers get a little frustrated is that they got a lot of requests and they start to innovate and make these new products and then no one buys them. What I think Mm -hmm. is unique about this collaboration is that we're putting our money where our mouth is, so to speak, and we really want to push this forward and test this out in our buildings because that's the only way to show that, yeah, there is demand and that we can sort of proof of concept with our actual projects play this out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Sydney. And and kind of building on that, the, the other aspect that I think is really powerful about this collaboration is that there are also other building owners mm-hmm. that have gotten involved, folks like Google Lendlease as well, which is getting more into the development side of things, formerly, you know, more on construction management. So I think that also helps to further bolster what Sydney was just mentioning, kind of really following through to the the actual purchase and not just mm-hmm. focusing on the R&D part, but yeah. really that whole cycle. So yeah. That's really interesting. And so just for reference, Sydney, like how big is a building that Durst produces or builds? Like what is the size and scope of the different buildings that you all do? Sure. Well, we have about 13 million square feet of commercial building that's built. And we have about 24,000 apartments that are built or underway in our portfolio. I guess to give you an example, one of our current multifamily buildings going up in here in New York City is going to have just under 940 apartments. It's fairly large. And then obviously with some retail at the base. So it's substantial. I'm blanking on the actual square footage, so I apologize. But we have buildings that are roughly in the 400 to 600,000 square foot range for multifamily. And then our commercial buildings are largest in the portfolio. Oh gosh, I just realized One World Trade is actually bigger. But the building we're sitting in right now, One Bryant Park is 2.1 million square feet. And we do manage One World Trade Center, which I think, oh gosh, it's under 3 million, but it's bigger than One, One Bryant Park. It's only under three million. That's it. Yeah, that's well, so I think it's two point something. I just can't remember. I'm gonna look it up. I'm gonna look it up. Oh man, now I'm embarrassed. That's awesome. Well, while you're looking it up, you know it's interesting because Sydney, you know, you and I first met, and then we started talking about having you on the podcast, and you're like, oh, we've we've got to bring Amanda on as well, because you guys you guys have known each other for a while, right? Like Amanda, didn't you work with Sydney like actually at Durst? Well, yeah. the other way around before you started. <laughs> Oh, was it that way around? Okay. And even before that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So Sydney and I have been collaborating for, I guess, since what, 2004 Four. or yeah. something like yeah. that. So here and there, but, you know, both Sydney and I have a, a pretty strong passion for the materials side of yeah. things. So yeah, I, I did used to work at Durst and when I was here, there was already a very strong focus on engineering and a lot of aptitude on that side of things. And so over time, just I kind of honed my expertise to help to supplement the materials, the kind of resource management side of things, both on the procurement side and the some of the waste management, which Durst is pretty strong on all sides of that. I think the Durst family is very uh, big proponents in the community on on all of these things. And so, it, but yeah, Sydney has some really great expertise on the academic side and professionally. And so, yeah, so we brought her here 2013, 14. 14? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so then we got to work together again, which I was super excited about. So yeah, as was I. <laughs> I have an update, 3.1 million square feet. So I undersold ourselves just a little. So 3.1. But yeah, so that's our history. And then Amanda went and, and took building product ecosystems into a whole other level. And I remain here as the director of sustainability, trying to continue the great work that the family has started and that has been carried through by some very hardworking people. 
So forgive me, Amanda, can you help me like as someone who doesn't live and breathe in the space that you guys do, like, what do you do? Like if you boil it down, if you're going to tell your five-year-old, cause that's basically what I am. Like, what do you, what do you got? <laughs> what do you do on a daily basis? Well, I, this is a funny, it's, it's funny that you put it that way because my daughter asked me to come in to read a book a couple of years ago and they asked the kids to introduce their parents to the rest of their class. And so they asked Violet, what does your mom do? And she said, well, she takes trash out of the garbage. <laughs> That's kind of true. It is kind of true. And I didn't know whether to correct. I was like, well, kind of. Yeah, that's, you know, it's kind of basically, you know, at at a very high level what I do. But I, apparently that's how I've explained it to Violet before that point in time. But later that night over dinner, I got into a lot more detail because I was like, maybe, you know. so, so I take trash out of the garbage and I help people that want to, you know, to really turn those resources into valuable commodities. But, but I think it's really important. A really important factor to all this is that we're starting with healthful building blocks. And so, you know, both Sydney and I have gotten very involved on the aspects of, you know, ensuring that we're understanding the ingredients that are going into these materials from the start. And it's really important to have a very transparent understanding of that, you know, through health product declarations and other tools that give you that trust that you're getting good data that can also be verified, third-party verified. So we work with building owners, you know, like Durst, to optimize these systems for making materials, but then also with an eye towards the capability for reusing these materials, you know, after their useful life in these buildings. And so we're really focused on the front end of those feedstocks in, but and then also really with a focus on the kind of the tailpipe, really looking at how, uh, you know, what comes out can then be, you know, remanufactured. And so we do a lot on construction sites to help quality control the uh, the piloting process for some of these innovations. Where we pull uh, garbage out of trash. Where we pull garbage out of trash. Yeah. <laughs> and so especially you can imagine like with concrete, we're dealing with structural material. The care and the quality control yeah. that goes into that is of utmost importance. And that's another reason it's a pleasure to work with Durst folks because – you know, they're they're not just there's some people that, you know, want to innovate at all costs and, you know, maybe aren't as careful. But because there's such intelligence at this company and I would kind of put Google at that level, too. And But they, they like to be first, but they're really careful and safe about it. That's what really helps to foster good experience through piloting, because, you know, we're kind of looking at a whole host of all of the different scenarios that need to be quality controlled through like a standardized specification. So we also work on standardizing over time so that it's easy to scale for anybody else who wants to implement these innovations. Yeah, we want to be first, but we want it to be replicable and we don't want to be the only like I think the objective with really what we're trying to do. I know this is not what we do day to day, but to talk to Amanda's point of this building product innovation is that we want to show that it can be done and that give people the understanding that we've thought carefully about how it can be replicable, that it isn't just a one-off kind of project. I want to talk more about where you see the intersection of innovation and sustainability, because a lot of the times what we hear when we hear people in the building material industry talk about sustainability, it's improving processes, cutting down on waste, that, you know, using recycled materials or something like that. But you guys are talking about innovating at the product level. And then what I really love that you spoke about at the beginning, Sydney, was 
immediately creating the demand, not just kind of putting out into the, you know, atmosphere like, hey, this would be really cool, but then there's nobody to buy that product. Like Durst really comes with that power. It's another question for another time. Let's talk about, sorry, I digressed a little bit on my own question. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just really, it's like a completely new approach. It's an innovative approach. Anyway. No, no, you're right. right. (laughs) Can you talk more just about why you think that intersection is really where the crux of the solution is for this problem? Yeah. I think being truly sustainable requires innovative and creative thinking. I think a lot of people see sustainability or environmental stewardship as somehow making a sacrifice. But what I think is so exciting, especially around buildings and sustainability, is that you can be, you just have to, it's a way to be creative and you can just make things better. So if you think about being innovative and sustainable, all it means is, okay, well, how do I do more with less, right? Like, how do I rethink the framing of the problem such that I'm really optimizing something? I'm not, I'm not getting less. I'm just, yeah, I'm just doing more. So to me, things, especially on product manufacturing or use or on construction, if you take the mindset that what you're really doing is something better or excellent or improved or optimal, I think it just shifts the conversation, right? It's not now about, oh, well, I have to do it because it's going to be less bad. No, it's it's not going to be less bad. It's actually going to be great. It's Mm going to be better. It's going to be healthier. It's going to have a lower carbon footprint. We're going to use less energy and we're actually going to produce a better building. So Mm -hmm. to me, that's, that's really the, it's a, it's almost a mental shift, Mm -hmm. right? It's just reframing. Yeah. I think you're right about that. And I, I think at the very beginning, when we started to focus on some of these improvements and innovations, It started off initially as an ask of the uh, manufacturers and very quickly, I think the manufacturers, you know, it very, they were very earnestly responding. um, Mm. And, but we started to realize that this was a, it was a bigger lift than just, you know, a manufacturer making a tweak to their manufacturing process. It started to, you know, become very clear that it was like, okay, well, we have to get our construction sites involved because sometimes we're capturing mm-hmm. debris from those construction sites to route that back into manufacturing or or we have to collaborate with a whole new system, mm-hmm. which is the uh, municipal solid waste system that captures glass to reroute that into a cement replacement. Mm-hmm. Or And so it, it can get complex, which can be very daunting to a lot of people, I think. But I think if you have a long vision with this and also are intent on expediting the stuff that can be expedited and just stick with it, I think that that's where you can get to some really rich improvements. And, you know, even for the manufacturers, what I think we've found in a lot of cases, especially when we've asked them for more information on, you know, like content, transparent content, in some cases at the beginning, it was sort of like not normal to ask for that and to provide that because it was, you know, some of that data is considered proprietary. But we've seen a major shift in that too, Mm. where I think a lot of times manufacturers are, saying like, wow, you know, I didn't even know about some of these Mm -hmm. aspects of my supply chain because they're really complex sometimes. There's so many layers. And so it's been kind of a learning process for everybody collectively. And I think it's deepened a lot of relationships between building owners Mm -hmm. and manufacturers to both start to say, okay, what is the status quo here? Like, let's provide all of this transparent data to understand where we need to optimize and then do it together really collaboratively and iteratively. And so you just start to get these really deep relationships that nurtures, you know, 
better making and, you know, cycling of resources over time. And I think all that's just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And I think like, so if you really want a concrete example of this, where I think, um, let's take one of the products that Amanda's working on, which is incorporating glass pozzolan into concrete. You know, we throw away into landfill over 70% of the glass in this country. And it's not that glass can't be recycled. It's not that technologically or uh, integrally that it can't be used. There's just no demand. So that's so dumb right? Like, what are we, why are we doing that? It's just it's dumb. It's dumb. Like, see it as a resource. Like, it's not a waste product. Like, people are great at putting a bottle in the right trash can and getting it to a recycling facility, and they think it's recycled, but actually it's not. The only demand for glass is for the clear glass. Everything else, essentially landfilled. So, okay, we have a problem with the carbon intensity of concrete, especially due to the cement content, here is glass, something that's going into landfill, but actually if we crush it small enough, works to replace the cement content of concrete. We have a lot of excess glass, perfect. We're gonna cut down the carbon impact using cement content in our concrete. We're gonna keep stuff out of landfill. We're gonna truly create a demand for something that should be recycled and people think are being recycled, but instead ends up in landfill and we're going to get a better product. Mm -hmm. Like to me, it's like, wow. okay, look, we're checking all the boxes, right? Well, and so frequently where we're generating all this glass waste, you know, where I guess, you know, we have a lot of glass being generated here from, you know, wine bottles. I was just going to say, we drink a lot of wine. But there's a lot of people in these city centers and yeah. uh, then we're also pouring a lot of concrete in these same locations. And so the challenges to this, are super surmountable. There are logistics problems that need to be mm -hmm. worked through. And so, you know, right now, one of the biggest challenges to using glass as a replacement for cement is that it glass is heavy and it's um, expensive to transport as a result. It's costly dollar-wise, but also carbon-wise. Mm -hmm. And so the more we can localize these, you know, networks for, you know, making, processing, reusing, you know, the better off we're going to be and the more successful we're going to mm -hmm. be. And I think there's like a, there's this localization that is, you know, I, I think starting to happen in a lot of cases, you know, concrete tends to have a relatively local supply chain that kind of over the years has become more global, maybe to the detriment of the carbon impact of the material where, you know, we don't have any or we have very little steel manufacture in the States any longer. And so byproduct from iron manufacture uh, slag, which is a cement replacement, is now coming from really far away. So mm -hmm. though we're cutting carbon impact of cement by replacing it with slag, you know, there's impacts to that transport from far away. And then, you know, same thing with fly ash. There's a lot of coal-fired power that's going offline in many locations around the U.S. and around the world. And so that fly ash that replaces cement is also having to tr travel a lot farther. And so, you know, there's starting to be this whole other set of impacts due to just the change of mm. industry and how we make power in many places. And some of that evolution is actually really great. And so it's, but it's, I think we're just needing to rejig how we source. And mm -hmm. I think it actually, like Sydney said, provides for like actually an opportunity to do things better anyway. Yeah. So we just have to kind of like acknowledge that there's changes and that we have to be responsive and proactive and how do we make it better as a result. Right. And I think to your point, you know, when you were first introducing the notion of what manufacturers think about in terms of sustainable products, they always mention recycled content, like not all recycled content is equal. Like even at that piece, mm -hmm. it's not just setting a minimum threshold and achieving it. It's really thinking about 
well, what does that mean? What am I using? Is it better? Do I get a better product out of it? Is it healthy? Do I have concerns around what might come with the content because it's recycled? How clean is it? Where am I sourcing mm -hmm. it from? And where do I end up with? So I, I think it's, again, how do I get the best product while still seeing what some people will see as waste as an opportunity as feedstock for something new? You're hitting on a lot of points here that if I'm a manufacturer, if I'm being really honest, like you say words like healthy and clean and sustainable and recycling, like I hear all those words and I'm like, those things cost more money, but expensive, don't necessarily expensive, make expensive, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. expensive, expensive, expensive. How am I going to make more money? Like, and not that that, not that we want to like throw, you know, caring about the environment to the wayside. I think everybody listening to the show would say that that's important, but can you give an example or give some insight about how can sustainability and, and creating what you're calling like the best product possible, how does it actually lead to profitability or more profit, if you will? Yeah. I wish I had a manufacturer here to I know. <laughs> give that aspect of it. I mean, you know, we can use the example of the concrete. If you're comparing, so the typical cement replacements out there right now are fly ash and slag. And so if we instead used ground glass pozzolan, which you know mostly comes from municipal recycling, though window glass can also be utilized, it is approximately the same price as cement and slag. Fly ash is very inexpensive relative to these other products, generally speaking, though some of the, you know, the fly ash costs are rising as there's more processing of that material needed because they're, you know, kind of needing to harvest it out of storage ponds more. But that cost is potentially, I don't want to say artificially low, but it's low because the alternative is, you know, having to pay to the coal-fired power uh, utilities needing to pay to landfill that material. And it's typically required that it be landfilled and aligned landfill because of the heavy metal content that could leach into groundwater. And so, you know, if we factor all these things in and I, you know, I think that there's some uh, building owners that consider, okay, what might the liability to using this material be further down the road? If, you know, I need to demo some concrete that has, you know, higher heavy metal content and, you know, what if, fly ash at some point does get designated a haz hazardous material, though, you know, it's not right now. There's all these things that kind of factor into that decision making. So, however, you know, ground glass right now, which is what, you know, one of the innovations that are being piloted is there's cost parity, but between that and standard blast furnace slag and cement. So a basic cement concrete mix, ground glass pozzolan is the same price. Mm. The challenge can sometimes be if that glass has to travel far. So what we're working on is localizing that processing. And that's that's key. So there's there's fixes and there's solutions. And so it's a matter of, you know, collaborating with a network of folks in a region to make it happen. And I think, you know, from the DERS perspective, the piece I can speak to is that we are also concerned about costs. We don't, um, we're not just jumping into something again to do it and then it costs 10 times more. We're looking at it being market accepted. So from our standpoint, I would definitely empathize with the what you just raised in terms of product manufacturers. And what we found is that when you start to drill down more and you have this multi-stakeholder conversation you can very easily start to pinpoint the, I don't know, the levers in the system that might contribute to something being more expensive or a perception of expense. 
And once you get those people around a table and you actually have the conversation and you really dig into what causes that additional expense, which in our industry tends to be, well, I've never done it before, so I'm going to charge more. You start to take that away. You have the conversation. All of a sudden, things tend to be, tend to even out. So a very specific example of this is uh, one of the other initiatives we're working with on building product ecosystems is recapturing uh, let's say new drywall trim scrap, the sexiest product out there. <laughs> from, <laughs> I think so. It's pretty great. No one believes me and it's super awesome. <laughs> but so drywall, it's basically gypsum and paper, right? To make it very dumb. It's not a dumb product, but to make it very simple. Gypsum and drywall, when you, you don't just use the full four by eight sheet, you, you tend to cut off pieces and they come off in pretty big right. chunks on a construction site. It's fully recyclable. And but in order to recycle it, you have to keep it away from other stuff where it might crumble and then you can't tell what it is and you want to keep it as whole as possible. So you mentioned needing to contractors that we're going to have to separate out all this material. We're going to have to keep it fairly intact. We're going to have to be slightly more careful. When you talk to our construction hauler, we're going to have to make a different exception for this material separate from the, their typical construction and demo waste. And now it's going to have to go to a very specific location because this specific person is going to process it in a specific way, all of a sudden dollar signs, right? And right. we've piloted it now on... Gosh, five buildings? Five, yeah. Six? Actually, six. If oh, you count. right. Our new one, yeah. Right, right, right. So we're in our sixth building, and it's essentially even. When we first started it, we walked in, and, and we were like, okay, maybe we're going to have to pay for some extra labor, or yeah, there's going to be an upcharge on hauling. And honestly, we haven't seen it end up being significant in terms of additional cost. Even the construction guys are like, oh, well, we're doing drywall mostly at the same time, as, and it's, there's not a lot of other waste being generated, so really to keep it separate wasn't that big a deal. Mm-hmm. And we figured out the logistics so that the way that the, the construction waste hauler was coming, he would bring a specific 30-yarder, and that bin was not, it didn't take up more space, et cetera, et cetera. So you just, you have to have the conversation and get over the perception of difficulty, I guess. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden you have that, and you're like, oh. Okay, not that bad. And we're even trying something new on one of our buildings where we're actually taking demoed drywall, which it's not new. We're taking that and we're separating it out for recycling. And again, the the charge that we incurred to try to do this was over the the cost of the contract was it, it was pretty nominal to do it. And mm-hmm. we haven't had yeah. we haven't had huge hiccups. So. Well, I think like something that it makes a lot of sense because, you know, if you commingle things that you eventually want to separate yeah. out, especially when they're those things, yeah, are, you know, they crumble true. easily, there's that cross contamination potential. It makes for a lot more labor at the recycling yeah. facility. And, you know, we've heard estimates from the recyclers themselves where, you know, they're describing that if you know, gypsum does get commingled with all the other debris from a site, they end up losing like 30% of that material to just fines, which can only really be used to cover a landfill. And that's not, you know, true recycling that we're seeking. You know, mm-hmm. I think, you know, there's, there's also this evolution, you know, as we have more and more data available mm-hmm. to us, you know, it kind of lends itself to greater transparency into like the full system of impacts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we've learned over the last few years in, in really working with manufacturers, working with our recyclers, is that if that wallboard doesn't get recycled, if it does make its way into fines or just, you know, in chunks even, 
if it goes to a landfill, it ends up causing hydrogen sulfide gas to form whenever you have humid anaerobic conditions, which we have a lot of, you know, in this area in the northeast, southeast and that's an asthmogen for the communities around those landfills. And so there starts to be all these mm-hmm. like related costs, yeah. which I, yeah. you know, it, not to mention, you know, carbon, you know, I think, you know, uh, carbon accounting is increasing and people are starting to get more comprehensive about tracking embodied carbon and looking at carbon credits. And I think that it's only a matter of time before that gets monetized. And not that it hasn't happened anywhere in the world. It has. It's not the norm yet here, but it will be. And so I think, I think we have to be like really looking at all these different aspects. I think from the manufacturer's point of view too, where, where it pertains to innovation, I've seen multiple instances where, you know, when that conversation between the manufacturer and, you know, a purchaser deepens and once there's a a transparent accounting of what's in a product, you know, when someone says, hey, you know, there's this dye in here that I'm not that excited about. I'm not I'm not that excited about the um, the toxicity of that dye. What is it really? You know, Mm -hmm. what happens if we took that out? Yep. And, you know, the manufacturer says, well, you're going to get like something that looks a little bit more like this. And in some cases, in many cases, you know, we've had situations where, you know, the the purchaser is like, actually, you know, I kind of like that better. (laughs) And so there's a savings there actually to the overall cost to manufacture because there's a removal of ingredients sometimes, not even a replacement with something else. So I think there's very likely wins there on the, the cost side. Yeah, it's shocking how having a conversation, an honest conversation where you pull, remove the veil of enigma and you start actually looking at facts, all of a sudden these concerns or perceived additional costs starts to go away. Mm -hmm. I won't say that it's going to be work like that all the time, but honestly, usually a conversation Mm -hmm. gets you further than you think it would. You guys hit on like, the holy grail of a product. Nice work, Amanda. To hear, like, (laughs) in a bubble, if this happened in a room and we had a manufacturer come in and they were like, hey, we're going to tell contractors to change their process, do this thing that takes longer. Like, there was like, you're talking, and there was like 17 red flags. Do this thing that's going to... And you're like, and it turns out to be the same. I just, I really love anytime, it happens all the time when we, on the podcast where people are like, here's the stereotype about contractors. All they care about is time and money. They're never making their process. They're never changing their process. They're never changing their product. Like, it's just not going to happen. It's not, it's not, it's not. And then you guys are like, we just talked to them and they did it. And then the feedback We just had a was, conversation. Yeah. That it's and then fine. It- well, so, and I think it's the power of having the great. ask come from the building owner yeah. who hires yeah. the uh, yeah, construction manager. Yeah, that probably helps. But there's some, you know, but there's some yeah, really, yeah. there's some really proactive construction yes, managers agreed. too, and agreed. I think that it's a really, it's a re- they're a really key. They're like at the hinge in the middle of so much of this yeah. work, right? Like over yeah. and over again. Yeah, I so I think that selecting a good construction manager makes a big difference. You know? Yeah. Okay, so let's take that further and say I'm a manufacturer and I want to create a better product, which is actually something that we know architects want. Architects want better products to build better buildings. They just aren't always able to do that for a number of different reasons that we don't have time to get into today. Again, another podcast, another time. What are the ways that I could learn from what you have 
been doing and learn from what you're piloting, how could I market it properly to organizations like Durst or architects so that they really understand the benefit of this better product? And even like those conversations that you've had, like what conversations should I be having to get them to buy into like, it's a little bit different. You're going to have to change something, but it probably in the end will be a wash. I mean, I think starting with like very transparent information, both on the ingredients and health and on like environmental product declarations, for instance, on the carbon side of things is an awesome start because that's, you know, like I said, I think that like the manufacturers end up learning a lot about their supply chains and their processes Mm -hmm. and it it enables them to compare Mm -hmm. and contrast, you know, where they are in the marketplace of competitive products. And so I think that that's a really great place to start. And then it also helps them to understand where improvement is possible and needed, you know, so I I think that that's, that's kind of like the starting point always, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Some sort of verified information that's available to look at, but then also obviously the manufacturers need to reach the audience that they're trying to reach. And there are a number of platforms where people look for this information, the health product declaration collaborative platform, where these can be uploaded and accessed. There are a lot of the mindful materials library, the UL spot catalog. I think, I think manufacturers often, I think, get overwhelmed by all of the portals by which to put these documents to make sure that people are seeing it. But there are a lot out there. And I know there's a lot of movement in the industry to figure out how to minimize how many times a manufacturer has to put the same information in multiple places. Mm -hmm. So I think actually the health product declaration collaborative website is such an amazing start Mm because you really you're making one spot and you're making it accessible to everyone. A lot of industry players, like designers, know to go there. They can find this information. It's harmonized. Yeah. It's such a nice nice starting point. And it's like, there's no rating of the materials to it, but it's kind of like the, it's a very rigorous, and when I say rigorous, I I don't necessarily mean that it's, hard to do, but it's rigorous in its quality control mm-hmm. of the data in so that it can, can, you know, inform all these other systems. And like Sydney said, there's a lot of APIs being established yeah. to transfer that data yep. with the permission of the manufacturer that's inputting and the the suppliers to those manufacturers that are inputting data. But yeah, the idea is to make it as streamlined and as easy as possible so that those touch points are minimized and, you know, yeah, the updates also over time can become cumbersome if that's not the case. So, yeah, yeah. I just think that um, it's just such a nice entry. It's a nice way to, for people on the other side of manufacturers who are in this headspace already to, to find out that they are talking the same language, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Mm -hmm. Can I ask who's doing it well? What manufacturer like do you see? Because we just talked about like, hey, having a conversation, like that sounds nice, but like getting in front of the right people to have that conversation, like who do you see that's innovating well, that's building better products and that's actually partnering like effectively with people like Durst? I don't know if I can name product names. I think I mean, I would say like, you know, I think of like Mecco, the shade maker, I feel like they're doing a good job of constantly trying to innovate. I think some of the Walbert manufacturers, I was just like, going to say the partners right? who are running this pilot, National right? Gypsum and USG, yeah. um, they're doing so a great job. So open to having a conversation and yeah. really listening. And I, I would call out, you know, especially like some of the work that USG is doing in accepting any manufacturer's product back 
any Walmart manufacturer's product back, which is helping to really kind of crack open some of the logistic challenges that could be the case if you're yeah. only accepting your own product back. So I think like they're doing, they're, they're being, you know, kind of mindful of, you know, the logistical, you know, challenges, but national gypsum also, as far as making, you know, a lot of data, very transparent and available as far as their content, you know, I think us concrete's doing a good job with regard to, you know, trying to do a lot with environmental product declarations, mm -hmm. you know, to really get at some of the embodied carbon considerations, which mm -hmm. can be really complex with concrete because mm -hmm. there's so many different components uh, and admixture mm -hmm. chemicals and yeah. all these things. So, yeah. I mean, I think also it's so interesting. I won't name manufacturers, but I'll say that the area that they're in where I've had the most robust and productive conversations have come from players that I would not have suspected would be so productive. And they're like fluid applied membranes, couplings for pipe fittings. I've had incredible conversations about fire stopping this stuff that and drywall. Obviously. Yeah. I've also had very good conversations about finishes for sure. But I think what's surprising to me is I've found very engaged manufacturers from again, the, the non-visible building product industries or the kind of behind-the-scenes industries that aren't the beautiful paint on the wall or aren't yep. the flooring that you're choosing from who are, are really want to have this conversation and they really want to make tweaks to their product and they've come back to me and we'll have a conversation. I'll be like, actually, okay, so we moved around this chemistry, we've tweaked this product and actually, look, it works better and we removed that thing that you didn't want. And I'll like... Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> like, you're not even like a global company. You're a, you know, a, a national guy just got really interested in, in understanding the chemical makeup of, of your product. And we saw that there was this chemical of, of concern that we didn't think was great and you were able to make it work. So mm -hmm. I think there are manufacturers out there. There are a lot of manufacturers out there that are kind of quiet about this, that are actually doing a great job and are at least willing to, to, mm -hmm. to innovate and have the conversation Again, in those industries that you wouldn't expect. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's the way to Very cool. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, and I think just this, you know, I think on the, you know, we've been talking a lot about inputs into products and transparency and health on that end. But I think also the kind of the, I think there's a lot of importance that um, needs to be highlighted on the transparent accounting for data on the construction and demolition recycling. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a huge agree. lack of that. Yeah. You know, like here in New wow. York City, we have like one recycler that's verified, whose data is verified and over in Brooklyn. And it makes it really challenging to then really start to try to hone in on what the problems are with uptake of that recycled material, because we mm -hmm. don't know if the data that we're working with is is trustworthy. And I think that that's an area of the industry that really needs to improve. Yeah. And I think, you know, cities need to get better data on construction and demolition recycling to help us. And when I say us, it's like the big us. It's like, it's, you know, it's, it's building owners, it's consultants, like building product ecosystems, it's manufacturers too, though, on, you know, thinking about different sources for material going forward. I just, yeah. I think we need better data. And so I think we need more verification of data on in that recycling realm and then sharing of that data. So yeah, it's such a good point because, okay, so you have industries that have designed products that at the end of their life should come back to them to make new products, right? We can talk about the carpet tile industry where they've specifically spent a lot of time engineering that carpet tile to come apart and to be reusable and remade into new carpet tile. But 
if you don't have a really robust system in place for recapturing that at the end of its life when it's removed from a building or accounting of how much actually goes back as feedstock, you're missing a huge gap in the loop. It's everyone has done all this heavy lifting to make that possible. And these owners have chosen to put it in or the architect has specified it. But if someone who's, let's say, renovating an office doesn't have it within uh, their standard practice or the contractor doesn't know that, oh, you know what, I can take this carpet tile, I can send it back and it can be reused or that we have an accounting and a process for that. All that work that went into actually making a product, designing a product, procuring it, setting up the system so that it can be taken back breaks down. Mm-hmm. So to Amanda's first point, when we were started, like if you don't really look at the full ecosystem and get all the players on board, you've spent a lot of time in one area and you can have it break down very quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The data That's is great. so important. Good, yeah. good great. data, good transparent data. Yeah. Yep. Sydney and Manny, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. If somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to connect? So I would say visit durst.org. If you want to talk with me, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me. Yeah, same <laughs> I'm thing. Not, I'm, I'm not on, hidden. <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn as well. Also buildingproductecosystems.org, singular product, plural ecosystems. <laughs> so there's a lot of information on that website and also a way to get in touch. Excellent. We'll include that in the uh, the write-up as well. But thank you both so much for coming on this episode. It was excellent and insightful. We really appreciate your time. And if you want more great content like this, go to venvio.com slash podcast. Until next time, I'm Zach Williams alongside Beth Popnikolov. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to Smarter Building Materials Marketing with Zach Williams and Beth Popnikoloff. To get the resources mentioned in this podcast, visit venvio.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening.